Hey folks, Len Testa here. Today's show with Jim Hill is about concepts for a Muppet-themed restaurant that never got built. And it's part of our Unbuilt Disney Talks that we've started posting over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. If you're interested in hearing stories about the other things that Disney thought up but never quite got done, check those out. We've already got a couple of shows over there, each about an hour long uh, on Bandcamp. The first one goes through a 1984 memo about development ideas that never got done. They include a George Lucas Star Wars park and unbuilt ideas for Disney's Animal Kingdom, including unbuilt show scenes for Dinosaur that really would have transformed how we look at Dinoland. We're planning on doing about 15 of these shows, some here on iTunes, most over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. If you like this sort of thing, to quote Abraham Lincoln, this is the sort of thing you'll like. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lentesta, and this is a show for some time in late 2016. Jim, I've lost track of the uh, the dates because I blame I blame daylight savings time and our crazy travel schedule. There's a Stephen Wright joke that I love. He walked into a diner that had a sign that said, you can have breakfast anytime. So he ordered French toast during the American Revolution. <laughs> Speaking of time, are you watching Westworld? Yes. So multiple timelines, is that the new theory that, you know... The idea that there might be multiple timelines and that neither of them are present day oh. is blowing my mind. <laughs> but anyway, it's a subject for another time. There we go. There we go. <laughs> All right, Jim. So speaking of current events, a couple of things I want to talk about before we get into today's show, which is about alternate concepts for Muppet restaurants. But before we talk about that, a couple of things that have happened in Walt Disney World recently. First, Epcot announced a new festival because apparently there were like six days in January that weren't. Yeah. What's the the name of this new festival? I believe it's the Festival of the Arts, which two and three years ago, a concept was floated for... Basically, an innoventions festival. And the idea was that during the month of January and into February, they would invite young people down and again, the equivalent of battle bots and that sort of thing would be there. It was, was very much in that style. And that idea went away. And now we have the Festival of the Arts. When I was mentioning it to Nancy in the car earlier today, she was like, didn't they used to have that at the shopping village? Yeah, it was a uh, it was an arts based thing, but it was uh, it was on a much much smaller scale. This <laughs> is a uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday thing, so long weekend mm-hmm. type thing. And is it is it going to be in Future World? Because I didn't read that part of it. Remember that you've got horticulture ramping up for in March. Yeah. yeah, and they have to start planting in February. So I have to assume that given the standard procedure that they use World Showcase because they're trying to drive people deeper into the park so they'll mm-hmm. eat at those restaurants and that sort of thing. This news coming on the heels of Bob Chapek talking about there's a new day coming for Epcot. Let, let that lead to a final sunset for Future World, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> nice setup there. Thanks. I got to ask, and mm-hmm. I'm sure I know the answer to this already. I heard visual arts you said mentioned performing arts. The cynic in me says there has to be culinary arts in there as well. Yeah. I think now they're doing a, a holidays around the world type food event there. Yeah. And that's going to run t- through like the first week of January. And then this thing starts January 13th, this new festival of the arts. So really those, some of those booths in World Showcase could be there literally from September through, well, the end of Flower and Garden, right? Yeah. In May? <laughs> 
you know, and, and really, the only reason they'd moved them backstage for May through August, September, is because you get the larger crowds in during the summer, and it's like you want to keep those walkways exactly. open. What I told Laurel, I said that number one, they, uh, those things probably weren't designed to stay out nine months out of the year, and uh, walkways during summer will probably be more crowded. But we can expect sort of the, the same sort of twists on standard food and wine offerings for this Festival of the Arts thing. Uh, yeah. Musical and Broadway showcases at the American Gardens Theater stage, so musical showcases could really be be anything. I mean, they could, they could get anyone from... Uh, Rick Springfield to the Harlem Boys Choir. Uh, yeah, there. I mean, it just it, it will be interesting to see this being the first what what they'll try. But oh, oh, okay, I found the the quote from Chapek. Okay, so this is what Chapek says about Epcot, and that the park will be going through a major transformation in the next couple of years. Couple means two. Well, three, depending on what lifestyle you're into, but go ahead. Okay. My understanding is that they're looking to get started within the next year or two, and that there will be major attraction every year past the 50th, that they're going to try to have the three or four of the biggest chunks in place in time for Disney World's 50th anniversary in 2021. I will will say right now, Mm -hmm. if they can do one large new attraction in Epcot per year between now and 2021, I will donate $1,000 to Bob Chapek's charity of choice. That is not going to happen. Uh, I'll even give them 2018 to start. It's okay. just not going to happen. They, okay. don't, they don't move that fast. <laughs> now, remember, this is Disney, so, you know, an attraction of size. I mean, we could be talking a double-wide, you know, food booth. Yeah. Does re-theming... Well, even re-theming Maelstrom took them a year. Yeah, I know. Does an Interventions uh, booth count as a major attraction or uh, an attraction of size? Mm. I, yeah, but see. here's the part I, I, I know is going to concern you. This is how he describes... The transformation the park's about to undergo. More Disney, timeless, relevant, and family-friendly. But while maintaining the original vision of this science and discovery park. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like the ice cream that you buy, the low-calorie ice cream that you buy in discount supermarkets that promise you all of the great taste and none of the calories. Uh And it turns out being none of the calories and none of the taste. (laughs) You, You simply can't do those things. Well, you know, you you can't you cannot simply put all of those words that Bob said into the original vision of Epcot. It means Epcot has to change, and I and we've said this before on parks. There has to be a way to explain the difference mm-hmm. between what you get in each of the parks in terms of entertainment. So, like for example, what's what's the difference between Toy Story Mania in Hollywood Studios and the attractions you get in Magic Kingdom? I mean, that would be a difficult thing to explain, right? Yeah. Epcot, you know, we can we can explain what Future World and World Showcase were supposed to be, but the more you add Disney characters in there and the more you base the rides off of IP, uh, you know, Disney's intellectual property, then it becomes more and more difficult to explain what, exactly what the difference is between Epcot and Magic Kingdom. I completely agree. But the problem is that we are in Pottery Barn country, Lynn. Future World and World Showcase were broken and in the process of breaking before Michael Eisner came through the door. I know, I know. But still, I think in a long weekend, we can figure out what to do with this. Okay. It's, uh, it's commitment. So, Jim, on the heels of uh, things that aren't going to happen, weren't we supposed to have Rivers of Light by now? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, the I mean, there was strongly hinted that during last week's media preview, mm-hmm. the members of the selected media would get to see Rivers of Light. And we had seen activity 
I mean, literally up until, I think this was the, the preview was supposed to be on November 18th. And I think, you know, up through the night of the 17th, we had heard things like, you know, people reporting, hearing the entire soundtrack, and there were blurry photos of floats in the park after dark and after all the guests had left, and now nothing. Yeah. Iger signs off on all of this stuff, and mm-hmm. they sent him the video of the last performance rehearsal, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And Bob looked at it, and there has been improvement. Mm-hmm. In the end, it's just like, look, it's not a strong enough show to stand on its own. Evidently, the plan now is that Rivers of Light will, in fact, debut in the summer of 2017 as part of the, the opening of, of Avatar. And given that, you know, those people who are waiting to get in have to have something to do, it's like, hey, there's that Rivers of Light thing. Why don't you go check that out? And evidently, entertainment basically has been told, okay, how long will it take us to burn off the cost of Rivers of Light? And it's a, a three to four year return on investment, Len. Wow. And then it's just like, okay, fine. For the 50th, I want a brand new entertaining show for this space. I get it. You know what? And, uh, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a good management decision for if, if Iger really did say that it wasn't ready to be released, mm-hmm. uh, that's a, that's a commendable decision. Don't, yeah. don't release it if you're not, you're not proud of it. That's fine. And if they want to wait till next year, fine. The, uh, you mentioned though that they, they've committed to a summer opening now. Yeah. Yeah. Of Avatar. So, mm-hmm. summer ends September 21st, 2017. <laughs> uh, how, um, how comfortable are you on that date, given what we know about oh Disney? Oh, boy. Dates? You know, we just had Cameron and John Landau, the, the producer of the Avatar films, on stage hyping this whole thing. In fact, they showed animatronic shaman you'll encounter on the Navi River Adventure. Yeah, it actually looked so good, I thought it was CG. I don't think that video actually does the figure credit. You're not going to see the shaman as a close-up. He, this, she's going to be standing on shore. It's going to look that much more impressive when she's a 10-foot-tall figure and moving that smoothly. You're not going to be a foot and a half away from her face. You're going to be in a boat looking up, surrounded by this amazing bioluminescent forest. It'll work there. My concern is that they do something like they did with Frozen Ever After and Epcot, where they spend all the money on two animatronics and then you you end up floating by 100 feet of wall that's completely unthemed and painted black. I can tell you that's not the right perception. I can't tell you why. I know that. <laughs> we'll, talk, we'll, we'll talk off the well, show. Yeah, that, that, that's, no, no, trust <laughs> this, me. This is one of those stories that J- Jim tells me, and then six months later, uh, uh, we get to tell everyone else. <laughs> yeah. So. Fair enough. But. All right, so one last thing then. Mm-hmm. Um the weekend, I got a tip from someone who was involved in the project that the Magic King- Kingdom has launched private cabanas in Tomorrowland. And what these are are canvas tents, a family-sized tent. They fit eight people. So they're the size of a you know a small bedroom with um, clear windows and some chairs in them. And the idea is that there's about eight of them stacked off to the side of Space Mountain in Tomorrowland. And for $650 a day plus admission, you can use one of these cabanas to rest or get out of the sun or, you know, relax, bring your kids into nap or whatever. $650 a day, Jim, for cabanas. Okay. Now, now remember, this is the pilot. It's a test. It's right. a test. What's the test of? Suppose the test is successful, James. Well, there's an element of these that haven't been dropped yet. One of the things, the final finished version of these cabanas will have 
the most excellent view of the fireworks and the parade that you can imagine. That means they wouldn't be in Tomorrowland, then, because the parade doesn't go through Tomorrowland. Actually, yes, but don't think on the ground. Think up. Oh, you, uh, so you and I had talked about this yeah. years ago, mm-hmm. where they were going to use the rooftop of the space that used to be the Tomorrowland end of the Skyway? Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. That's a fantastic view of the park. Yeah. So, Not that I've ever been up there illegally. Let me just say no, that right no, now. No. Once the info comes back about this test, and I was told one of the perks of this was that you were going to be able to sit inside of your cabana, and they were going to allow people to order from Sunny Eclipse and have food delivered there. Yeah, I've heard that uh, food delivery is a different option. The food is uh, not part of the deal? No, well, so not yet. That, that's get, now it's what? Ice cream bars and, and cold drinks and that sort of thing. But the food is not included in the price. I mean, you, you're paying extra for the food being delivered. My understanding is it, at one point they were talking about setting up a ring of them on the roof of the Tomorrowland Terrace. That would be moderately interesting. The main objections that I have mm-hmm. with the cabanas now aren't aren't the price. They look hideous. They do. They absolutely do not go with any of the theming in Tomorrowland. And and to say that it's only a test implies that Disney doesn't have the capability of making a Tomorrowland-looking tent, which I tend to think their creative team could probably come up with something again over a long weekend. It's that the management doesn't care enough to put the money into it. And my second concern is that it is so blatantly an us versus them class thing Yeah. that if it was more discreet, I would be absolutely fine with it. But the way it is right now is not something that I can get behind. Again, if it's up on the roof of the Tomorrowland Terrace, if it's built in to the Skyway, I'd even heard uh, talk of putting them above the shops on Main Street. Absolutely fine with that, right? But the, I think one of the great parts about Walt Disney World is that with you know very few exceptions – once you get into the parks, class distinctions disappear. You don't know the, whether the person next to you is staying off-site or at the Four Seasons or the Grand Floridian, and they don't get any special perks you know, as far as you can tell because of that. And I think that's that's good. Especially coming up on a 50th anniversary, we were trying to get the entire world to go there. Yeah. To get back to the, what you see as badly themed tents, one of the reasons they look the way they do is that because they're going to move around. There's going to be a test. My understanding is that they're going to drop them the tents were that, that kiddie play area. The year before last, it was the one that was themed around Monsters Over University. In, uh, Oh, on the uh, on the side of yeah, uh, yeah. World East between Canada and yeah, just just th- same thing. Throw up some planters so it's it's somewhat discreet, but it's fairly centrally located between World Showcase and and Future World. And same thing. Find out if people are willing to pay six hundred and fifty dollars a day for there. And the Imagineers have been told to hold an acre and a half in reserve. As part of the Star Wars experience, you know you could you could put a lot of tents in uh, Wonders of Life. <sighs> so you you told me the acre and a half thing. So I I ran some numbers, mm-hmm. just sort of like you know back of the laptop uh, type of calculations, and I came up with this. Let's say that the tent and sort of like the walking area around it mm-hmm. takes up six hundred square feet. That means that you could put about a hundred and ten of them into an acre and a half, and at six hundred and fifty dollars a day. It's something like $11 million in revenue per park per year. For, for something like the studios, that is literally like adding a dollar onto the cost 
of every ticket that you sell. I understand why they're doing it. I mean, at that point, yeah. if the question is, hey, we're going to throw up some tents and between the California parks and the Florida parks, we're going to get $67 million in additional revenue. Disney can't buy tents fast enough for that, right? No, I agree. But in talking to folks who are involved with this project, one of the things about the cabanas is that in final form, they want at least five to 10 feet of space between them. They won't be quite on top of one another. I will tell you from the Imagineering side of this, they're kind of furious because from the Imagineering's point of view, they're like, you cannot have this space in Tomorrowland permanently. We have things coming down the pike that we want to actually put in that space. Yeah. And so it's like, you have to find another place for these. Being told that you have to carve out this land in Star Wars experience, it's like... Yeah, and let's face it, I mean, an acre and a half is... For a for a some an addition like Star Wars, an acre and a half is not small. No, no, and that means you lose an expansion pad. Yeah, a restaurant, uh, you know, yeah. fast food restaurant or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, the argument for parks and resorts is like, look, it's a revenue stream, and the money from this revenue stream eleven million dollars a year. Yeah, buys <laughs> a lot of concrete for another expansion yeah. pad. So. All right, so let's move on, Jim, to our topic of the day, and it's mm. another unbuilt Disney topic. This one relates to the opening of the Pizza Rizzo restaurant in the studios, right? Yeah, and it's soft opened last week. It's now officially open. Last week. Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, ironically the exact same menu, same prices, same food, uh, same everything. I think it is extremely light on the Muppet theming, which is kind of ironic given the thing that we're about to talk about. I want to credit Seth Kaberski of the, the Orlando Weekly, and, and we work with Seth on the unofficial guide, but he pointed out when you take into consideration the expansion of the seating area and the fact that they doubled the ovens, they doubled the cash registered, they now have the capability of, of making a thousand pies an hour. Seth basically put it together that what this really is all about is they knew out ahead of the opening of Star Wars Experience yeah. and Toy Story Land that the quick service meal needs, especially toward the back of the park, we're going to get crazy. And so the opportunity to expand the seating, to increase the amount of food this place could produce out ahead of that opening. And yeah, you know, you got to throw some Muppet theming in there. Not a whole lot because that really wasn't the priority. The priority was to have this tool in place. So in 18 months to two years, when Star Wars Experience is, is doing land office business and... Wait, so Jim, so the, uh, you think that uh, Star Wars Land is going to be open by late November 2018? Again, I'm, I'm willing to take these bets. I am. Just, uh, the teams, when, when they finish working on Avatar, the entire construction team just sort of pivots and goes over to the studios. But that's, that's middle of next year. That gives them 15 months Star Wars Land? I mean, Corsican wasn't built in a day, James. No, no, I get that. I do. You're going to see over the next six months or so, the, the, the horizontal work, the electrical, the conduit, you know, that sort of thing. And the support walls and all the facilities will start to go vertical starting in January. All right. I admire your faith in uh, in their abilities to get this done, we'll say. So, Pizza Rizzo now open, uh, yeah. rat-themed Muppets restaurant mm -hmm. in the studios. But there are... Other concepts for Muppet restaurants floating around. And this is one that, that we found over at the um, Buzz Price Archives at the University of Central Florida. Yeah. Uh, the thing that Len's about to talk about 
was something that Disney proposed in 97. So this idea, Mm -hmm. all right, is for a Muppet restaurant involves Kermit. Um, Yeah. Sort of the main, one of the main characters of the Muppet. This one's, and this one's dated 97. Yeah. So the memo uh, with this one concept is in Buzz Price's archives. Uh, We'll read you some of Buzz's handwritten notes on it. So it's the story and the theming concept for the restaurant. The first concept was called The Swamp. And again, this is a Kermit-themed restaurant. Some names that they came up with for it. The Lilypad Cafe, Kermit's Lilypad Cafe, Kermit's Meadowview Cafe, Blue Bayou, which is the name of the restaurant in parts of the Caribbean in Disneyland, which I think is hysterical. Also, uh, Kermit's Bayou Restaurant, Kermit's Bayou Bistro, How's Bayou. That's my favorite of the bunch. I love that one. (laughs) And Kermit's Cafe. And for the storyline, they say, In the tradition of celebrity-owned restaurants, Kermit and the rest of the Muppets have opened their own, and in doing so, replicated a little piece of Kermit's home swamp. It's a down-home type of place where everybody feels comfortable. The food is Cajun-influenced slash seafood slash southeastern with funny drinks at the bar. And I don't know if the rest of the memo describes what funny drinks at the bar might be. But Jim, can you imagine a Muppets-themed bar? Would be the greatest. We'd all be alcoholics. Yeah. We would we would we would all be in rehab. <laughs> all right. Interior art direction says there are several possible approaches for the interior, and they list them. A Mississippi Delta shack made to look as if it were constructed from old wood boards. It has a tin roof, which occasionally gets, quote, rained on. That's interesting. And is built in the middle of swampy trees with Spanish moss that grows through the roof. Or the old mill. Tables and chairs appear to be carved from wood logs. Perhaps patrons are encouraged to carve their initials into the furniture. Or maybe not. I love that parenthetical inside. <laughs> or or maybe, maybe we don't give the patrons whittling knives. A water wheel still turns uh, as a small waterfall gently cascades into the swamp. The third idea is a treehouse. Built in a synthetic tree about one story over the main dining room, the treehouse seats about 25 diners and can be used for private parties. The floor of the treehouse has a hole in its center to allow a branch of the tree to come through. In any of these approaches, all of the chairs appear to be carved out of wood logs. The tables are giant lily pads. So what do you think about the interior art direction, Jim? The notion of basically you got to sit inside of a Muppety-themed world, especially with this swamp ambience, I love it. You have to understand, this is 97, they're Mm -hmm. talking about building this. Now, in August of 1996, they had just opened the uh, Rainforest Cafe with the volcano at at the shopping village. That's exactly, when I'm reading through the interior art direction, that's exactly what I'm thinking, is that that a couple of these ideas, like the Mississippi Delta Shack, Mm -hmm. sound a lot like Rainforest Cafe. Well, supposedly what the Imagineers wanted to do is they recognized that by opening Rainforest at the shopping village... Suddenly, they had this this lopsided shopping retail dining district that everyone wanted to be over at sort of the rainforest side. And Mm -hmm. we are almost a decade into the life of the uh, Pleasure Island, and they were already realizing that they were having problems. And it was just this sort of notion of, well, could we maybe take one of the restaurants out of the inventory? I remember Fireworks Factory was right down there by the water. It was within the proximity of the Empress Lily. Mm-hmm. And so the thinking was that what they would do was they would create this sort of boardwalk area that basically they would de-annex, for, for lack of a better term, fireworks factory out of Pleasure Island. 
and okay. they changed the orientation of the restaurant. So you entered from the water side, but you'd walk by the Empress Lily. You'd come to this sort of boardwalky, swamp-themed area. You'd walk along Lake Buena Vista, and and, and what they'd done is they'd gutted the building. Except for the, like the tree that's coming up through the roof and that sort of thing. And now this is Kermit's Lily Pad Cafe. Oh, I like the entry through the water uh, on the water side. Yeah. Uh, well, especially when you consider the outside lagoon area. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's talk about the uh, the exterior art direction. Mm-hmm. So they say there are several approaches, each incorporating a pond or a river. So again, it's the the fact that you've got the uh, Lake Vista there is, uh, mm-hmm. is good. So the circular pond approach says this. A circular pond surrounds a swampy island in the center. Large fan boats holding some of the patrons circle the island. In the center of the island is a large willow tree. Its leaves are a canopy over all of the fan boats. The sky is an artificial blue sky in the tradition of the Lowe's Paradise Theater. Perhaps Muppet-shaped constellations, i.e. hidden kermits, are seen in the sky. Another approach is the river approach. At, at the dock on the river, rat-captained crawfishing boats... <laughs> Can you imagine Rizzo as a boat captain? Uh, Rat-captained crawfishing boats pull up. Trees and Spanish moss are a canopy above. Small, rat-sized riverboats paddle along the pond. From their tiny internal speakers, we hear that something fun is going on. Either approach can incorporate a huge treehouse. See interior art direction setting for details. The tree towers above the main floor. <laughs> and and to the side of this, mm-hmm. Buzz, Buzz Price has written, no rats in a restaurant. I love but, that. But, I but, love that. So, yeah, I love that. It, it, it's, it's like literally the first thing he writes. But then he says, crawfish as a specialty of the house, which is brilliant. So that's where the you see, you see uh, a couple of different mentions of crawfish in this memo. And to make them not only a feature of the decor, but also a feature on the menu, I think is, is kind of funny. I agree. So interior uh, vignettes. In the wait-to-be-seated area, there are large pick-your-food seafood tanks Inhabited by Muppet fish who try to talk you out of eating them. (laughs) The fan boats circle the island as diners go from dawn to dusk in the swamp during their dining experience. So that's sort of like what they do uh, with a roaching thing over a garden grill in Epcot, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There are buzzing beehives and crickets are heard throughout the restaurant. Fiber optic fireflies can be seen and diners can hear crocodile rock a quartet of singing animatronic crocodiles semi-submerged in water. Rats run the crawfish boats and small tours launch in the water. Muppet animals, birds, opossums, etc. are seen in the tree branches overhead. In one out-of-the-way area, there is a dark cave for the kids to explore. There are stalactites and stalagmites, and in one very dark corner we hear a sleeping bear. Occasionally his eyes open. We only see his eyes in the darkness. Perhaps there's a small animatronic or video show on the rat-sized riverboat that cycles through every 20 minutes. The bridge across the river might even be a drawbridge that raises so the riverboat can pass. Off to the side, we see the kitchen shack. Windows into the kitchen shack are masked video monitors revealing the Muppets cooking. Ah, so there's, there's your idea. A river goes through the dining area. A bridge crosses the river. A rat-sized riverboat paddles its way down the river. We hear a show going on inside the boat. So that's uh, that's another way where you could do uh, Muppets cooking. I tend to think that uh, the Electric Mayhem Band doing the cooking would be funny. It kind of breaks my heart that that they got this far along, and they actually they sacrificed a movie to do this. You can see though, it could be so much more than a movie because you can add so much more detail 
into it. And you can, you can do like a phase one and a phase two and a phase three, mm-hmm. a restaurant where you, you keep adding complexity and it's, it's tough to do that with a, with a movie. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's, let's, let's talk about the, the page, last page of this memo with the interior vignettes. Muppet, crawfish, and other seafood plan their escape and to make a break for it. The diners watch it all on, quote, surveillance video cameras. A big mounted fish on the interior dining area talks. Animatronic lounge lizards perform every 20 minutes, singing a selection of lounge singer classics. Projected shadow images on the translucent glass looking into the kitchen show Swedish chef speaking Cajun Swedish, <laughs> dealing with kitchen staff, and Miss Piggy complaining about sausage in the etouffee. <laughs> the Woodpecker Percussion Jamboree, a simple animatronic woodpecker, set of woodpeckers, put on their own version of Stomp every 15 to 20 minutes by picking on the tree branch that comes up through a hole in the floor. The rats deliver food from the kitchen via small tramway on a cable. So that's the same idea that you, you talked about before, right, Jim? Well, this is Eisner who wants his Muppet restaurant. And Buzz writes, no, just a simple <laughs> no next to this paragraph. Uh, so uh, perhaps simple animatronic rats do the pulling of the clothesline type cord. A bell is rung in the kitchen. When a new batch of food is going up the line, all the diners can watch the food. Perhaps a well-planned disaster happens every 45 minutes with a rat or a server getting food in the face or dropping something. All right. So Buzz said no to that idea. The big weenie. So the big attraction is they note that there are a lot of possibilities here. One is uh, on the interior, a gumbo cooker in the center of the room looks like a big furnace or pressure cooker. It steams and sputters and creaks with audio cues warning of the pressure building with sound effects, lighting cues. The cooker explodes in a small, fun dancing waters fountain show with rats and crawfish on top of the contraption. Again with the rats. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the outside, water begins to bubble. Rat boats race by in a big Muppet crocodile and or Bertha Craw Mommy. (laughs) Ross, Bertha Craw Mommy is what I'm going to get tattooed on 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 my arm. Rises out of the swamp and belches while a large barge chugs by with rat and crawfish band playing on the bayou. Or, there's a big tree in the center of the island, or in the center of the exterior area if we don't do an island. It's alive with simple animatronics, owls and squirrels, as well as tiny speakers for ambient noise and sprinklers to drip dew on the patrons. The big weenie show is the sunrise and sunset that occurs at regular intervals. As either of those things happen, the creatures in and around the tree start to make music, either by making noises on their own or tapping. The result is a woodsy symphony celebrating the beauty of nature. We might do something with, quote, dancing waters. That's a common theme in Disney stuff. Only in our version, the water is being spit by some kind of <laughs> swamp creature or fish. That's definitely the Muppet take on it. There we go. And then the last paragraph of the memo says, uh, every hour or so, there's a big cookout concert. A live, and they, they actually put in parentheses here, real people, jug band entertains the customers. This could be costume characters of non-core Muppets that play to a pre-recorded track, or it could be live talent. The MC for the concert is Kermit, the frog who either is seen on a hidden camera, a hidden video monitor in the kitchen shack, or is a silhouette through a scrim-covered window in the treehouse. Okay. That's the concept for the Muppet restaurant. So there's a date on this memo, right? Yeah, it's uh, October 8th of 1997. Okay. Here's the sad part of the story. By May of 1998, this facility, that the fireworks factory, where this they envisioned building this, was now in the hands of the Levies, the folks who did do own Portobello Yacht Club and Fulton's Crab House. Basically, it came down to, do we want to spend our own money to build a restaurant themed around a set of characters whose last movie didn't make money, 
Mm-hmm. Or do we want to just let a lessee come in, spend their money for a restaurant to freshen up Pleasure Island and hope that that will create a big enough draw that there the will be balance between the shopping village and Pleasure Island? And in the end, that's what happened. Uh... And they not only lost this concept, but they lost the movie. But Eisner kept after the Muppets. And when they they bought them in 2004, finally, there were a lot of people within the company, well, why are we doing this? I mean, you know, the, these are the Muppets. They, they, they're kind of a, a faded franchise. And Eisner was actually able to ram it through because at that point, one of the hit shows for young children on the Disney Channel was Bear in the Big Blue House. Love that show. Yeah, but it just, it, it was one of these things where that was Henson produced. And so when they bought the assets, I mean, uh, Eisner literally just said, cherry picked, okay, I want the Muppets. I want Bear in the Big Blue House. I want all of the Muppet movies that they made. I want the television yeah. shows. And Disney actually left behind Labyrinth. They left behind the Dark Crystal characters. It's been interesting. The Henson family has actually been developing... And, and Fraggles! They left behind the Fraggles. Really? Fraggle Rock? Yeah. But they took every iteration of the Muppets. In fact, the Muppet Babies. In fact, Disney Junior is reviving the Muppet Babies as... Muppet Babies. Yeah. yeah. They did a test of that a couple of years ago, right? Well, I mean, the, the difference is they're doing them CG, and they'll be doing ah, as a full-blown okay. series in 2017. Nice. But sometimes going through Buzz's stuff... At the Rosen kind of breaks your heart. I mean, it's it's cool to trip over this stuff, but it's just, you know, they got so far along in the development of this, and it's just in the end, eh, the Muppets aren't making any money, and we don't really want to spend any of our own money. So, sure, let's 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 give it to Levy. The thing that I love about the memo is, and this is the tantalizing thing about it too. Mm-hmm. This is concept number one. There were apparently other concepts. Yeah, and, and yeah. we haven't. I haven't yet got to them in the archives, but you know, you know that there's stuff like that just just buried nope. away. Time to go back to the boxes, Blin. <laughs> next time, next time we're in Orlando. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we've got what, like another dozen or so of these. Uh, easily, yeah. Fantastic, uh, folks. If you enjoyed this, head over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. We're posting uh, other recordings of our unbuilt Disney talks there for a small fee, a couple bucks per show. Each of them is about an hour long, um, but they contain things that. Very few people have ever heard of regarding stuff that Disney hasn't built. Everything from their famous 1984 memo explaining why building an animal or studios-based theme park is a bad idea <laughs> to things like <laughs> no, it'll never work. That'll never work. <laughs> to things like the uh, the SS Disney, a uh, an oil tanker converted into a floating theme park. Go ahead and listen to those over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. And while you're at it, please go on to iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and rate our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. Don't forget, we are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams for Jim. This is Len. We will see you on the next show. Take care.